chapter 15, verse 22 and following. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you remember the first time that you were rejected uh, for something. Just left out. You were, thought you would get something and you didn't get it. Thought you had something or had secured something, but then were turned down for it. Do you remember the first time that you were rejected? I do remember the first time I was rejected, and her name was Emily Gilbert. And Emily uh, was my crush for three years, and uh, first grade through third grade. Totally free with that information, by the way. Like, I just let the whole world know that Emily was my crush. I didn't care. I had not learned the shame of rejection yet. And so I just let everyone know. It didn't seem like a big deal to me. And so when her best friend, Ann Ever Russell, I hope she doesn't listen to this recording because I am friends with her on Facebook, um, <laughs> Ann Ever approached me one day after school as we were waiting to be picked up. And she approached me with this, this look on her face that only young girls can give you, uh, like they're about to destroy your life. And uh, she said, so you like Emily? And, and I said, yeah. Uh, everybody knows that, you know. And she said, well, I can assure you she does not like you. And uh, just something in the way she said it was just kind of an awakening for me. It was, uh, it was a tearing open. It felt like I had not understood the world previously, and now I, some reality came crashing in. It may seem like a silly moment, but it's actually one of my earliest memories in life was that, was that rejection, which turned out to be false, by the way. She did like me, and Ann Ever, <laughs> Ann Ever, I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she was jealous. I don't know. I've never analyzed that one, but it seemed, it seemed so wrong for her to say that to me. It wasn't like I was 
expecting to marry Emily or anything like that. It seemed like a senseless kind of rejection. And it hurt. And it seemed unnecessary. And so I wonder, do you remember that for you? Like, what was that time of rejection? Maybe it was something really recent. Maybe someone saying, I don't want you to be employed here any longer. Or... I don't want us to be friends anymore, or they just stop acting like they're friends, or, you know, I don't love you anymore, or things have changed. Maybe even just this, the feeling that you get when you don't get approved for a loan. You know that feeling where you feel like you've kind of exposed yourself financially to someone and they evaluated you, and they said, no, uh, we're not going to give that to you. And you feel hurt, and you feel exposed, and you feel kind of angry at the same time. That feeling of I put myself forward and I got rejected. We know that feeling. For some reason, we have a hard time associating that feeling with Jesus Christ. Even though the scriptures give us example after example of Jesus being rejected. He knows what that feels like. And I'm not here to psychoanalyze Jesus' state of mind. I'm just looking at what the scriptures tell us about his rejection. He lived a life of rejection. Think about the way in which he was even in the womb, in Mary's womb. There are hints throughout the Gospels that tell us that Jesus was always evaluated as someone who maybe wasn't legitimate. There are little references to how he was born uh, or he was conceived out out of wedlock. Just little hints here and there that people knew this. And he lived on the outside for that reason. Think about his actual birth. I mean, he was rejected from the inn, right? They, they went to stay where they were supposed to stay, and they're like, sorry, there's no room here. So he was born in a stable. He lived a life of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief, the Scriptures say. And he carried this with him. We know this because of what he says about his own life. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. There was some sense in which Jesus felt homeless or separate from the crowd, felt rejected. But nowhere is it more clear that he was rejected than in this passage. He is, as Mark is going to show us, rejected in every direction. Whichever way he turns on the cross, he is rejected. It is utter rejection. But unlike Ann Ever Russell's comment to me, back in first grade, this, this rejection had a purpose. It had a purpose. And its purpose was for our acceptance. And so the point today is very simple, very profound if we can enter into it. It's this. His rejection led to our acceptance. Led to access. Led, his being left out led to us being brought in. And that's what Mark unfolds for us this morning. There's three pictures of rejection in this passage. The cross, the cry, and the curtain. First, the cross. We get about 11 verses here telling us how Jesus was crucified on the cross. Famous passage. Starting verse 22, they brought Him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This is this foreboding word there, this Golgotha, that's the Aramaic word, and then Mark translates it to cranion, which we then translate to skull in English, 
Maybe you've also heard the, heard the word Calvary, that Christ died on Calvary. Many old songs use that. That's just the Latin word that means skull. So the point is, we have all these different words for it, but the words just mean is this, this place of the skull. And it could be that that's a geographical feature. There's a place outside of, of, of Jerusalem that sort of looks like a skull. That there's a hill and there's, there's rocks set so that it looks like eyes on the hill. And that's one possible place where Jesus was crucified. There's another tradition, though, that says that he was crucified more on the inner city. And there's a church there now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is the, the second tradition where Jesus was crucified. We don't fully know. But it could be, in that case, that the skull here is just the reference to how murders, I mean, these, these crucifixions happened here. He's offered wine mixed with myrrh, it says in verse 23, but he did not take it. This was given to him as to have a narcotic effect on the pain. This was meant to be a, a mercy to Jesus. He was given wine mixed with myrrh to help with the pain. This was common practice. But Jesus is not interested in granting himself mercy. If he was interested in granting himself mercy, he wouldn't be doing any of this. As the scriptures say, he could have called down angels for his defense, but he doesn't. He is enduring this. He's not drinking this wine. And we're actually already told in Mark chapter 14, just the chapter before, that he's not going to drink wine. It's at the Last Supper, and he says, this is the last time that I'm going to drink of the wine until it's new in the kingdom of God. I'm not drinking anymore. I'm not holding a glass to end my pain. I'm going to only raise a glass when I've finished pain forever. That's what I'll drink to. Now, he's drinking a different cup, as Mark has told us throughout the Gospel. Are you able to drink the cup with which I, I drink? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. That's the only cup that Jesus is drinking now. In this passage, there's just so much here. There's so much Old Testament imagery. There's references here to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Psalms and 1 Kings. This crucifixion is, is painted for us on the canvas of the Old Testament. And more, most significantly is the, the references to Psalm 22 throughout this passage. The first words of Psalm 22 are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's referenced throughout this passage, that messianic psalm that was written many centuries earlier. And here it's, it's referenced for the casting of lots for his clothing. It says in verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. Psalm 22, 16 through 18 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We're told the exact timing of the crucifixion because it's for the planned and foreordained purposes of God that this happens. And the timing is significant. It's the third hour, 9 a.m., when the crucifixion starts. It's the, it's the sixth hour, that's noon, when darkness settles over the land, the time of the day when they're supposed to be the brightest. It's the darkest time of day. And then he dies at the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., the exact time when the sacrifices were offered in the temple on a daily basis. The exact time where Elijah called on the name of the Lord 
to light up the sacrifice so that he could prove that the one true God was better than the God Baal. This was the sacrifice hour, and Jesus is the one being sacrificed. Even though this crucifixion was a Roman death, there are all kinds of Jewish implications for what is happening here as the shame is heaped on him because as Deuteronomy chapter 21 tells us, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see his rejection in the titles that they use throughout. Never before have we seen such a concentration of the titles of Jesus Christ. Mark has been hiding them. Jesus has been hiding them. Whenever somebody says, you're the Christ, he says, be quiet. My hour has not yet come, but the hour has come now. And so Mark lays it on. The Christ, the King of Israel. The King of the Jews. Everything that's been concealed is now revealed. And it's revealed in a way that shows that it's the suffering that makes it so. That He is the Christ and the King. Notice also that everything that they say about Jesus even though they mean it in mockery, is actually true in a different sense. As they come in verse 29, they say to him, Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. But of course, that is exactly what is happening. That's true. The temple is being destroyed. The temple of his body is being destroyed. And it will be restored in three days when he is raised from the dead. Verse 31, others come and mock him. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. That's true. Here's what they mean, though. When they say he saved others, the word saved there can also mean healing. They're talking about he healed others, but he's not able to heal himself here. But Mark means it in a bigger sense. It's true. He's saving others with what he's doing right now, and he cannot save himself. If he saves himself, he cannot save others. If he saves others, he cannot save himself. So you see all of his rejection. But his rejection was not without a purpose. The purpose of his rejection and the shame that he experienced was so we could be liberated from the shame. And you see how completely Mark shows us he was rejected. He's rejection, rejection in every direction. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, he would have been done so on the ground and then would have been raised up. And so these people that are wagging their heads at him and, and condemning him are doing so from below. They're shouting up insults at him. And so when he looks down, he sees the rejection. He can't look side to side either. There's other criminals being crucified. And Mark tells us in verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. There's no honor among these thieves. They are, they are ready to throw Jesus under the bus as well for some reason. They find him despicable as well. And so with people shouting at him from below and people shouting from side to side, there is nowhere for Jesus to look for help but up. And he does look up. And what he finds is forsakenness. Because there's not just the picture of the cross here, of his rejection. There's the cry as he cries out to God. Verse 34, he cries out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, he cries out again. He uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. The loud cry 
The words used there are only ever used in Mark's Gospel of one other thing. The loud cry of the demons that are possessing people where Jesus, when Jesus drives them out. The connection is clear. Mark is saying he's experiencing this demonic presence on the cross. He's experienced evil. This kind of crying out comes from evil. In his crying out, they have no mercy on him. They continue to revile him. And there's this bit about Elijah here where they say in verse 35, they, they hear it and they say, Behold, he's, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down, take him down. What's being referred to here is that there was this common belief, even though it's not really clear who really believed it, it's kind of like a folklore that Elijah came down and helped people. Why? Because Elijah, he, when he didn't actually die, he was delivered to heaven in a chariot. And so people thought, well, maybe he has access from heaven to earth. And so there was this kind of folklore around Elijah. Maybe he comes and helps those who are in need. But nobody really believed it. It's just something people said. Kind of something like saying, well, my own personal guardian angel. People say that phrase a lot. And a lot of us don't believe that, even though we believe in angels, that there is a personal guardian over us all the time. So there's something like that. They're saying, wait, 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 let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see if anybody can help him. Even that made-up guy who can come down and help sometimes. He's given this sour wine or vinegar. We're not really sure if that's to help him or to hurt him, but certainly fulfills Psalm 69, which says that he will, be, he will be offered vinegar. Another messianic psalm. His cry is this, Psalm 22. First words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's such a desolate prayer. After all that Christ has done, after all of his work to be the true Israelite, to come to the place of his greatest need and to be rejected and forsaken by the Father. That is so desolate. We recently tried to go uh, camping, and this was when a few weeks ago when all the campgrounds were starting to shut down, and we thought we had heard that one was still open. And so we, we did all the work of, of camping. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to relax camping. You guys know that, right? <laughs> It is, we, we got everything out, we pumped everything up, we deflated everything, we packed it in neatly, we packed coolers, we gathered firewood, we strapped it all in, we put car seats in the truck, everybody was ready to camp, and we drove, and they had, just the day before, closed the campground. And it was too late to go anywhere else, and everywhere else that we called was closed. We've done all the work for the camping experience only to be rejected when we got there. And i got to tell you, when you get home and you start unpacking camping stuff that you haven't even used yet, that's like the worst feeling of rejection you've ever felt in your life. I mean, other than Christ here. But like that, that's close. That feels so bad. Jesus Christ had done all the work of being the beloved son. And it was work. I think sometimes we think that Jesus just kind of naturally obeyed and it was easy for him. But what did the scriptures say? He learned obedience through what he suffered. This was difficult for him to stay connected to the Father, to, to, to follow the law. And he did all of the work of being the true human being. And in the moment when he was rejected by others, he was rejected by his Father as well. It was rejection in every direction. 
But even in this rejection, there is a purpose. And the purpose is is that He is modeling faithfulness for us. While that is a desolate prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is also faithful. There's the personal possessive pronoun, my God, my God. He still identifies this God as His Father. He still knows Him. And isn't it interesting that when He is at His weakest point, He's still praying liturgically. He's still praying Psalm 22, which He would have prayed in the temple, what He would have learned and memorized in rabbinical school. He's going back to something that He already knows to be true, that He would have prayed before. See, it's not wrong to pray and acknowledge that sometimes it feels like God has forsaken us. This is something that the faithful have always prayed and experienced on some level or another. So even now, when he actually is forsaken by God, he prays a modeling prayer of faithfulness. See, being a a faithful follower of God doesn't mean that you always feel that connection to him. It doesn't. It means that even when it feels like he has forsaken you, you still say, my God. You still return to what you have known, what you have experienced again and again, and wait for the feeling of connection to return. The cross was a picture of rejection. The cry is thirdly and finally the curtain. Verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. What is this curtain? God tears the curtain in the temple apart. The curtain was to the inner sanctuary of the temple. In the Old Testament, what's called the Holy of Holies. The most sacred place. The place where God's presence dwelt. This is what God tears open in this moment. If you know anything about that temple and that Holy of Holies, you know that nobody was allowed to go in there except one person, the high priest, And only one time a year, on the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the priest would go in. And even then, they had restrictions and purifications and all kinds of things that needed to happen before they were ready to go in. And so what Mark is showing us here, what God is doing here, is he's saying this is the last Day of Atonement. This separation is no longer needed. I'm opening this up. After this, there is no need for atonement. The great high priest is in fact, and Hebrews makes the same argument, the high priest and the sacrifice are the same. They're one and the same. The high priest has sacrificed himself and gone in where no one else could go and live and has died. It goes beyond even that because this temple veil, this curtain that hung in the temple had woven stars in it. If you read the Old Testament accounts of the temple, you see the stars were part of this tapestry. Why? Because the the temple was a picture of the universe. It was a microcosm saying, this is where God dwells, but his throne room is everywhere. His throne room is the entire universe, but here we see it in its smallest form. And so when God tears that curtain, he is in fact tearing open the heavens Rending the heavens, just like at Jesus' baptism when the curtain of the, of the sky is opened 
and the Spirit comes down like a dove, and the Father is there, and the Son are there, and this, this triune moment is enjoyed by, by Christ and those who are there. Here again, the, the, the veil is torn of, of the skies, and Jesus' second baptism is attended to here, his baptism of death, which is what Mark does call this day repeatedly. When we moved into our house in Chandler a few years ago, we used to live in Chandler, and uh, we, we had bought a house, and in the master bedroom there was this wall of windows, and covering the wall of windows was a massive curtain, I mean, the biggest curtain I've ever seen in a house before, and it was bright pink. Uh, and so when we moved in, and we were thinking, okay, this is the first thing to go. You know, this curtain's got to go. So within a week, I had the drill out, and I was, I was taking down that massive curtain. It was the thickest curtain I've ever seen, huge. I couldn't actually carry it myself out. I had to get help carrying out this curtain. It was so big and so thick. Well, then we realized why the curtain was up. <laughs> As the first morning without it was very bright, very early. And no matter what curtains we put up up there, we couldn't keep the brightness out. Those windows were so big. And then when summer came around, we realized another reason why it was there. <laughs> it was trapping the heat out, this thick curtain meant that the AC could actually cool that room, and we never got that room as cool as it, as it was when we first moved in, no matter which kind of curtains we put up. And so the curtain, while it, while it was ugly, it was necessary, okay? It was necessary to keep out the light and heat of this brutal place where we all live. I mean, it was ugly, but it was necessary. And this curtain is ugly, in a sense. It was a picture of stay out, stay out of this place, but it was necessary. It kept the light and the heat of God's holiness away from the people of God who could not receive it and live. But now it's torn. And what does that mean? It means, in a word, this. Access. Access. Access to the Father. His rejection led to our acceptance. His being left out led to us being, being brought in. His rejection led to our access to the Father. So Ephesians 2 puts this so beautifully for us. For through Him, that's through Christ, think about the temple tearing open, His body tearing open and creating a way. Through that way, through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see the Trinity again? That moment that happened. Through Him, we both have access to the Spirit, in one Spirit to the Father. Both meaning Jews and Gentiles. Everyone, even though this was a Jewish temple, now the curtain is torn and everyone can come in through Christ. This temple that's made without hands is now the access point for everyone to have faith. So how do we respond to this rejection. His rejection was not without purpose. It had a purpose. And its ultimate purpose was our access. How do we respond? The obvious response is this. We must enter in. We must go where Christ has cleared the way for us to go. We must come into the presence of God and take hold of the access that He has given to us. That, what does that mean? It means that we don't hold on to shame. We can't. Jesus was already ashamed for us. It means that we stop 
believing that God has forsaken us. Even though it feels like that, even though it's faithful to pray sometimes, why have you forsaken me? At the end of the day, that is not true. God has not forsaken us. He forsook his son so that he will not forsake us. Don't believe and don't live like God has forsaken you. He has not. We will not be rent in God's judgment because Jesus Christ was already and in that tearing there is an opening for us. And so if we continue to believe that we must suffer in order for God to accept us, then we are in fact making a mockery of the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. We can't do that. It's not that Christ's death makes it possible for us to to feel accepted. Like that's now an option for us. We must feel accepted. We must know that we are accepted. Otherwise, we are still depending on ourselves for that access. The way that the passage ends tells us the way that we enter in. We enter in again through belief and profession. That's what the centurion does when he sees Jesus die. There's lots of ways, and many have interpreted the crucifixion of Jesus in many different ways, but there's one faithful way. There's one faithful way. It is to confess and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I love that Mark includes in verse 39 that the centurion stood facing him. It's almost to add to this whole picture of this rejection from every direction. It's not until he dies. After he dies. Beforehand, the centurion was part of the problem. He was contributing to this. He was rejecting Jesus, as everyone was, as God was. Everyone rejected him. But the moment that he dies, the centurion becomes the first person to face him and to profess and to believe. And that is the only way to enter into the presence of God. That is the only access point that we have, is to face Jesus Christ and to confess what is in fact true of him, which is that he is the Son of God. He is the way of salvation and the only way. And when we profess and believe that, whether it's for the first time today or whether we are re-evaluating that belief and saying it again as we face Jesus Christ today and we hold the cross before our eyes as we sang earlier, we do that again and we say, this is my access and my only access. I have nothing else to give. I don't need to suffer. I don't need to be ashamed. I don't need to work harder. I don't need to do anything except enter in through Christ. He is the access. I just want to close with this quote from Theodore the Studite, who was a a monk in the ninth century, and he said this about the cross. How precious the gift of the cross. How splendid to contemplate. This tree brings not death, but life. Not darkness, but light. This tree does not cast us out of Eden, but opens the way for a return. This is the wood on which Christ, like a king on a chariot, destroyed the devil the Lord of death, and freed the human race from his tyranny. It is the wood upon which the Lord, like a great warrior wounded in his hand, feet, and side, healed the wounds of sin that the evil serpent had inflicted on our nature. A tree once caused our death, but now a tree brings life. The tree of Garden of Eden has cast us out of God's presence, but here, through Jesus Christ, this tree brings us in for a way of return. We must return to Him. Return through Christ 
our only access point. Let's pray. Father, even as we even as we hear this again, Lord, it's just there's a belief in a 